From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators found a few more tricks than treats in Jacksonville as critical turnovers led to Florida's first loss since September 8th. After the difficult loss to Georgia, the destination has likely changed for Florida, but the goal of continued growth and improvement under Dan Mullen remains the same as the Gator Nation comes together for homecoming. On today's show, we'll recap Florida-Georgia, preview the meeting with Missouri, and get first impressions on Gator basketball's exhibition debut with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, defensive tackle Kyrie Campbell shares how the Gators stood strong on one of the most remarkable goal line stands in school history and why he resisted playing football until much later in life. But first, the Gators knew they would have to play a nearly perfect game to beat a national title contender like the Bulldogs, and it was clear early on that it likely wasn't going to be their day. So to open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we asked each of them to break down why things didn't work out for the Gators in Jacksonville. There's one word that stands out to me, turnovers. Uh, Gators had three of them, led to 10 points. But more than that, they really set the tone early. They got down, you know, especially because of Scarlett's fumble. Georgia goes down and scores a touchdown. And I think it was, what, 10 nothing early in the first quarter, and you're sitting there wondering, hmm, is this thing headed to the way last year's game uh, in Jacksonville was? But, you know, the Gators, they were so good at not turning the ball over for much of the season. In the last couple of games, they've committed six turnovers, and that's going to be imperative for them to, you know, finish strong and to do some of the things that they set themselves up to do. And it starts with Felipe Frank's uh, – a bad interception the other day. I didn't blame the fumble on him too much. That was a great play by the Georgia player. But you still, yeah, you fumble at the one-yard line. Georgia takes over. Great defensive goal line stand, but it led to three more points and a nine-point lead at that point in the game for Georgia. So it took it up to a two-score game. But I think that's where the main emphasis is from what I've seen. I was out of practice Monday, and uh, there was more than one mention of ball security during that practice. And Dan Mullen has uh, said, you know, a couple times this week about that being so paramount to get that right again because, again, Chris, we've seen it against Missouri. They've lost to Missouri in some strange ways, and turnovers have always seemingly been at the heart of it. Yeah, and I think uh, I don't think the defense can be absolved of some blame here either. Uh, granted, everyone pointed to the uh, incredible goal line stand, and it was an incredible goal line stand though, after Felipe Franks fumbles on his own one-yard line. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was a eight-play drive of zero yards, and it lasted almost four minutes. <laughs> and you know, they kept, that kept the game, you know, manageable from from a score standpoint when it could have been disastrous. But man, um, eight of fourteen on third-down conversions—that was what Georgia's offense did to Florida's defense, and four of their uh, touchdowns came on third down. So, um, you know, so I, I would think that when the defensive uh, uh, position groups are meeting in their rooms this week, uh, they're discussing some of those things. Now, um, some of that could not have been avoided given you lose C.J. Henderson mm-hmm. on the first series of the game. That's you're asking for it. And uh, uh, the Bulldogs took advantage of it. I give Jake Fromm a lot of credit. I think on this show last week, I talked about how the Gators want to 
get him in a position where he has to beat them uh, by, sh- by you know, controlling the running game. And they did that for the better part of the game. But Jake Fromm, you know, to his credit, made some big plays, made some big-time throws, and he certainly took advantage of uh, C.J. Henderson uh, being replaced by C.J. McWilliams. And uh, uh, the, res- the results were out there for everybody to see. But that stuff's uh, got to be cleaned up a little bit and certainly has to be cleaned up when you're going against a, a quarterback as proficient as, as, as Drew Locke has proven he can be. You guys both mentioned that the goal line stand, and it was really something to behold. That wasn't even a, a one-yard goal line stand. That was like a, a half-yard, and we'll, we'll talk about it coming up with Kyrie Campbell. But uh, I'm curious, what do you guys think the defense can take from that? I know Todd Grantham has talked about this week as well. There's not a lot of positives you want to take from a game that's as disappointing as Saturday was, but how important was it for that defense to really further cement the fact that they're moving the right direction, and, and they've got some really tough young players in there. Well, Grantham said it best to a longer line. I mean, that was one of the best defensive stands he's seen as a coach, and this guy's been around. He said it's the best he can remember being a part of. But it, it does speak to the, the team's committed. He said more than anything, what that shows you is that these guys are playing together, that they got each other's back. And, you know, someone asked him after practice Tuesday – you know, if some of the fourth quarter struggles with defense, with Georgia scoring a couple of those late touchdowns, that defensive line kind of takes some wind out of the, the defense. He goes, no, that actually gave us energy. Uh, hmm. It fired us up. We, we just didn't execute, you know, defensively and offensively. They had some execution breakdowns in those final 10 minutes that ended up uh, resulting in, you know, score being a little more lopsided than the game actually was. And, you know, you look at this defense – you know, Grantham's system, I think, has fit well. I think you're seeing linebacker Voshan Joseph really blossom in, in his system, a more disciplined player in the run game. He was in on a couple of those goal line stand tackles. You know, Chris talked about C.J. Henderson, and, but we thinks he's going to be back against Missouri. But overall, I think the defense has been pretty good under Grantham in his first year. They've improved statistically in most categories, and – I mean, let's face it, you can't stop any offense with so many plays uh, from the one-yard line. If you're not doing something right, if you're not putting in the effort. So he's getting that part. They just need to, uh, you know, make sure they execute well trying to defend the pass because that's going to be the key, I think, in this uh, Missouri game. Scott, you mentioned quarterback play right off the top, and yeah, that's going to continue to be a big topic, and it, it certainly had a little fuel added to it when we saw Emory Jones surprisingly come in and you know, Mullen even said after the game, all the talk leading up to Jacksonville was how many snaps was the freshman quarterback going to get? But they were talking about Georgia's. We didn't end up seeing Justin Fields at all. And then we saw Emory Jones play, a, you know, a, a decent role in that game and threw a really good looking pass to Van Jefferson. That ultimately was a pass interference call, probably would have been a touchdown. So now the question a lot of people have is where does Emory Jones fit into the quarterback battle? the rest of the season. So what is our understanding of when we're going to see Jones and how he's going to be utilized as it relates to Franks as well? Well, I mean, Dan Mullen said we're going to at least see him two more times uh, in the final four regular season games. You know, they devised packages for him in some games, but he hasn't played. And, you know, obviously with the new redshirt rule where a player can play up to four games and still uh, be redshirted. He has two more games to work with in the case of Emory Jones. So I know a lot of fans, you know, took that. Felipe Franks must be on a real short leash here. Uh, that's not the case at all. Mullen was asked directly about that uh, at his uh, weekly press conference. I mean, this is still Frank's team. Yeah, we're going to see a couple more 
uh, Emory Jones packages. And, you know, that's a smart thing to do, I think, uh, on the coaches staff just to get him more experience. And in terms of what he saw, what we saw from him on Saturday against Georgia, I, I, I'm agree with you. I mean, he, his pass, uh, the only one he threw was a really nice deep ball. So, but the, the key to that whole, uh, I guess renewed debate, Adam, was obviously the, the turnovers that we talked about earlier. The one interception played into that because it was a bad play. And, and really it started the first play of the game when, when they did the flea flicker, clearly had Georgia fooled. Van Jefferson was wide open down the middle of the field and Felipe overthrew him. So, Right there, it was a golden missed opportunity to set a tone, and uh, they missed it. And, and from then on, you just sense that, okay, Felipe is certainly going to be under the social media microscope. Mm. <laughs> that played out on Twitter, certainly. He had his best throw of the game on the, what, 36-yard touchdown pass to Swain to put him up. But mm -hmm. what wasn't his best performance season low in yardage, uh, didn't have a lot of great moments in the game. and But again, He's going to have to do something on Saturday because we know Drew Lock's going to drop back and pass it a lot. I think Georgia, I mean, I think Florida is going to have to throw the ball some too. Coaches can't afford to think about who the best quarterback is going to be in the spring or next year when they open the game against Miami. He's going to look at it a lot different than a fan is. Yeah, yeah, much different than a fan is, and the um, that's the way he has to look at it. Right. To a man, these these players, Adam, talk about, and rightfully so. Man, this this could be a really good season still. They could be playing in a New Year's Day game or a post-New Year's Day game or something like that. They're not going to the playoffs. Everyone knows that now. They're not going to the SEC championship game. But um, yeah, they, there's there's still a lot out there to for this team, whether you want to talk about a 10-win season, 11-win season, or something like that. I mean, they lose any of the games remaining in the regular season. It's it's going to be disappointing because I, I think they're going to be favored in all four. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, three of them are at home, and then they go to Florida State, which is obviously having its issues right now. So uh, there's a lot out there for them. And along the way, this team can get a lot better at what it does. And that includes Felipe Franks. That includes Emory Jones and whatever opportunities he gets. And that probably includes Kyle Trask, who will probably get his shot. But it's funny. I was at a couple of weeks ago, I was at a Gator Club speaking, and people say, why haven't we seen Kyle, Kyle Trask yet? And I got to remind them. The guy never played football for pretty much. Yeah. I mean, he, backup in high school. Well, he was a backup in, in high school. So, uh, uh, as usual, the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy. And we get, we saw what, 10 plays from Emory Jones, not even that, probably six. I think he took five snaps. Yeah. And, but... and, you know, Felipe Franks, until we see something to suggest this otherwise during a game, and it's not just a cameo appearance by Emory Jones. I believe that's the guy Dan Mullen thinks gives this team the best chance to win. And 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 the other thing, if I may say, if you you all of a sudden uh, say, well, let's start thinking about Emory Jones being the quarterback next year, that's not a very good message to send to the CC Jeffersons and the Martez Ivies and and the seniors who may think uh, somebody else gives their team the best mm -hmm. chance to win. I think everything that's going on in the coaches' uh, offices right now has everything in the world to do with what it's going to take to beat Missouri. When, and let's talk about Missouri. I know Drew Locke has already mentioned that's what comes up most often with Missouri. Uh, and you always hear about how Drew Locke is going to be an NFL quarterback and whatnot. And yet they've got some obviously frustrating results that don't suggest that. I mean, they did not get a first down in the second half of their game against Kentucky, which was at home, mind you. Uh, and they, they lost that game 15-14 to 14 on a really weird, crazy play at the end. But what, what do we make of this Missouri team? Because they've given Florida fits in years past. There's no doubt about that. But how does this particular Missouri team match up with what we're going to see from Florida? 
I mean, I think it's advantage Florida this year compared to certainly uh, last year. The, the program was in turmoil when they went out there. It was their first game under Randy Shannon. And, and you could just tell it was an early game. They came out there and got waxed, what, 45 to 16, lost by 29 points. And, and there was one of those games that Missouri had here when Muschamp was here, beating Gators 42-13 and scored every way possible. And uh, they had 107 yards <laughs> offense, but scored on a kick return, a punt return, a fumble return, an interception return. <laughs> that was pre-Drew Locke, but Missouri is, has, has I think they're 3-3 three and three against the Gators since they joined the SEC. But there's one thing, uh, Drew Locke is getting um, mentioned as an NFL quarterback, but boy, he was good in Missouri last year, 15 out of 23 touchdowns, but boy, he was horrible here two years ago. Four of 18 for 37 yards. And remember, he had those two pick sixes with Tabor and Quincy Wilson. That's right. And, and the Gators uh, rolled that day, got a nice win. You know, it's a game Florida is favored to win, and it's a game that really they need to win to, talk, to go along with some of what Chris just mentioned about the big picture where this team is. The loss to Georgia was certainly disappointing. But now you do enter a stretch here where, it, it, let's face it, if the Gators win 10 or 11 games, you could have won a lot of money in Vegas this year if they were offering that bet. And, uh, so they still have a lot to play for. Uh, Drew Locke's going to be a, a challenge. Uh, they're coming off a tough loss, too, you know, against Kentucky. So, you know, they're going to want to try to uh, overcome some of those bad uh, emotions and just come down here and try to put on a good performance. But the way Drew Locke goes is the way the Tigers go usually. Lest we forget, Gator basketball is nearly upon us. And on Tuesday night, they held an exhibition game at Exact Tech Arena. Chris was there. So, Chris, I'm curious, what were your takeaways from this first public viewing of the Gators? I don't know how much you take away from this. I know Mike White took away some some things he really wasn't happy about, mostly on defense, uh, straight line drives, ball screen defense, Things that really were too easy for Florida Southern, which at one point was shoot 50% through the first 12 minutes of the second half. Hmm. This is a Division II team, a pretty good one, too. And yet, you know, Florida obviously over overmatched them in, in terms of size and athleticism and what have you. But, um, you know, it ends up being a 95-70 to 70 win. But uh, I think it's good when you, when you get something like this happen to you in the preseason. Um, I also think that when push comes to shove and certainly in Tallahassee right out of the box, uh, the Gators, the minutes were really spread out. Everybody played at least 10 that's on scholarship. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, what the rotations are going to be is certainly not something that the coaching staff knows right now, but it's, they're going to be different uh, in, in a first game against Florida state, which is going to be one of the more physical games Florida plays before it reaches the, uh, the, the conference schedule. But um, Andrew Nemhard is a guy, uh, point guard he's much different than past point guards for this team he's tall he's rangy he's he's got length to get in the get in the lane and and finish shots on his own I went in the locker room and said were you nervous out there a little bit he goes I don't get nervous playing basketball so it was just a game that where maybe maybe he just you know wasn't as productive as say Keontae Johnson who had 12 points he had eight rebounds he flashes athleticism I think uh Maybe it's more of a thing about rhythm for Andrew Nimhart. And I also know for a fact that Florida Florida didn't do some of the things that they're going to do against FSU to try to get guys open. So we'll see what happens uh, a week from now. But that was a dress rehearsal. There's a baseline for the coaches from which to operate in terms of uh, what they need to do to get better. They return to practice Thursday, and we'll start getting ready for an FSU team, which basically returns most of its uh, – 
most of its better players from a team that went to the late Elite Eight last year and was a, inside the last minute, had certainly had a chance to beat Michigan to go to the Final Four. Michigan, of course, ends up playing for the national championship last year against Villanova. Let's move on now to our PAT. Uh, if anyone listened two weeks ago, we talked about Sally Field because I had just gotten to see Sally Field speak and actually met Sally Field. Uh, this week, I got to see Tom Hanks speak. I did not meet Tom Hanks, unfortunately. I would have loved to. Did not meet Tom Hanks. But I got to see Tom Hanks speak, and he was great. He was exactly as you would hope he was. While he was speaking, I started looking through his uh, his filmography and realized I have seen 27 Tom Hanks movies, which means you guys have probably seen even more if I've seen 27. So it got me thinking about Tom Hanks's best movies. Everyone's got a favorite. I'm curious for you guys, give me your favorite Tom Hanks movie and then defend your position. Does Bosom Buddies count? Is that a TV show? Yes. Okay. I mean, I guess if I said favorite Tom Hanks role, then you could, yes. If you want to, you always like to cheat on my questions. So if you'd like to cheat and use that as your answer, I guess I'll allow it. It was a, it was an awful show, and I, I, I wouldn't pick it. But I mean, <laughs> you, if you went deep enough in his filmography, you would have seen that he was a star of a of a really bad early, eh, it might have been even late seventies, early eighties uh, sitcom. Um, you know, the one that jumps out at me, I I, I love Saving Private Ryan. I really enjoyed him um, in the Post, uh, which is obviously his last role that that was out. But one that the one that I always watch when it seemed to watch when it comes on because. You know, he has to change his accent in it, and he's just a different kind of character, I think, is The Green Mile. Mm-hmm. I really, really like that movie. I know it's got supernatural kind of flavor to it and what have you. And he reminds me of um, of a present-day Jimmy Stewart, uh, the likable guy, the everyday guy. And I'm not saying just in that movie, but I'm saying in, in just about every one of his roles that he does. There's not a lot of movies where you walk away from, from a Tom Hanks film you say, man, that, that wasn't a very good movie. Maybe... I was a little bit uh, disappointed in Da Vinci Code, I think. I think he was miscast in that. It's funny you say that because, you know, most actors, when you ask them, oh, what's what's your worst move you've made or what's something, no one ever answers the question. He actually, during his hour-long talk, voluntarily ragged on the Da Vinci Code. And, he, you know, he was asked about the challenge of making movies. He said, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, have you guys seen the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> he has a sense of humor about the, about the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, and he, has, he turns around and he goes and does d- demons and whatever the one was. Angels and demons. And then he did he did a third one. He did a Inferno a couple years ago. Oh, that's right. He did yeah. the Inferno. Are they better than the Da Vinci Code? Um, Debatable. They're probably about the same. But I am looking forward to He plays Mr. Rogers in his neck in a film that he's making right now. And I can I can definitely see that. I think that's that sounds like a home run casting to me. But he can go down the line. League of Their Own is a great movie. I think he's terrific in that. But uh, you could probably, like you said, how, how many movies has he made? Well, you said you've seen 27. I've seen of, 27 of his movies. Just about every one is, you could probably defend. I'm sure Scott has his own that he could probably defend, too. Well, you know, I'm looking here, Chris, at his filmography. His first acting credit, 1980. He knows you're alone. I have no idea what that. But he also played a series in The Love Boat. How about that? He made an appearance in The Love Boat. And that was before Chris's personal favorite boost some buddies. <laughs> but, you know, uh, for me, we all know his most famous role is Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump will always be one of my top five or six movies. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to go like the movie that I truly just thought that maybe he had his best acting job in, I just thought he was great in Castaway. I mean, you felt like when you watched that movie, man, that you were there with him on that island and, uh, 
you know, the the weight loss that he had to undergo and just the physical changes. And I mean, that was an amazing job of a performance by him. And I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, it's obviously a slower movie. It's hard to make a, a guy on an island talking to a volleyball <laughs> to captivate you, but it, it worked. I mean, of course he can pull it off. That, he's Tom Hanks. That's right. I mean, how many guys can you say can do that? And like Chris said earlier, what really makes him stand out is that everyday persona that he has, everyday guy, and he he makes you feel. And I mean, that's to me, that's the greatest uh, compliment you can give an actor is is if you feel what that person on the screen. Uh, is uh, showing on the screen. So, but Castaway, still, whenever I see it flipping through the channels, if, if I see it, I stop 90% of the time, unless a rerun of Lou Grant's on. So, there are very few uh, actors or actresses that have won back to back Oscars. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Tom, Tom Hanks won for uh, Philadelphia. Yep. And then a year later, won for Forrest Gump. And um, I mean, talk about two completely different roles. Mm hmm. But obviously, he's up there on on the stage, uh, uh, you know, holding up that golden trophy two years in a row. So uh, tip of the hat. I wish I would have been there to hear uh, hear Tom Hanks speak with you. But that must have been pretty cool. So and my least favorite Tom Hanks movie, Turner and Hooch. Stupid. (laughs) Yeah. To to Chris's point, ninety three, ninety four, the last person to win back to back acting Oscars. And, uh, you know, Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump's one of my all time favorites. It seems too easy. I'm going to say my answer. I'm going to go not his best performance, but my favorite Tom Hanks movie he's in. Uh, Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, it's just that, that's one of the most rewatchable movies. Anytime that's on, it's just it's great every single time. I love that movie. I'm going to go for I'm going to go for Catch Me If You Can. But there's a lot of them that are in my list of favorites. So it's it's a question that's hard to go wrong with. And we like to do it. We like, we like to give you questions. That everybody can win on. Everybody wins today. Uh, and hopefully the Gators will win against Missouri this coming weekend. And you guys can track all of Chris and Scott's coverage on FloridaGators.com. And, of course, follow them as well at Gators Scott at Gators Chris to see what kind of content they are posting. Gentlemen, thank you so much, as always. All right. Thanks, Adam. Wilson! <laughs> While some people grow up loving football from an early age, others take much longer to warm up to the game. Kyrie Campbell wasn't an athlete at all when he was younger, but his path changed drastically after he got on the field in high school and had a taste of what he could accomplish. We spoke to the sophomore about growing up in Virginia and some of his high-profile mentors along the way, but began by discussing why the Gators came up short against Georgia. I want to say our execution, us not executing, you know, the plays that coach called. And we ran to the ball, but I feel like as a defense, you know, we one of the best defenses in the country. So I feel like we could have done a lot more as a whole. And I just think that, I mean, my big thing was execution, executing plays, you know, tackling. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of the defense. So if you don't do those things, you know, you're not going to win a game. Probably the, the main positive that fans took away was that six-play goal line stand that was pretty unbelievable. How many of those plays were you in for, and how did you keep them from getting in from just inches away time after time? Uh, I was in for all of them. All and, six of them? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, I mean, the big thing is Coach emphasizes goal line and red zone, stay low, stay low and knock back. And as a D-line and the linebackers, we did what we were supposed to do. We stayed low. We knocked back. Linebackers came through the hole. 
And then you got Zoo coming off the uh, off the line so fast, they got no chance. When you're in a spot like that, and I think a lot of people assume it's just a foregone conclusion that someone's going to score when they're that close. I mean, how how do you have confidence when they're that close to keep doing that time and time again? Well, where where does that come from? I mean, coach told us since he got here, you give us a, a blade of grass to defend, and you're not getting in. I mean, they gave us a yard or a half a yard. I don't quite remember, but. As a defense, we just we had to lock in and say they're not going to score, and we'd rather give three points than seven. Well, and, and for you guys to be able to have a stand like that, I know there's a lot of things that frustrated you about the game, but to have that kind of sequence, how much confidence do you take away from that as you move forward? I take a lot away because that shows what type of team we are. That shows that we are on a championship level, and that shows that when it comes down to it, when it comes down to them trenches that we're ready and our confidence levels are at the highest. Well, and you guys were riding really high before this game. There's no question about that. Obviously, it's a tough setback. I'm curious what the reaction's been like in the locker room and, and in the days since the game in terms of where the, uh, the the morale is. I mean, it's just like, you know, we took our early uh, loss in the season of Kentucky. I mean, right after that loss, you know, we sat in the locker room. We talked to each other. I mean, as a team, we knew that Hey, we ain't do something right. We got to pick this up, whether it was tempo at practice or being more physical or doing more studying. So we're at that point right now where we're, all right, we did this, we did that. Now how do we better execute our plan? I want to take things back for you a little bit. Can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Uh, I got a little sister. I got a little brother. And it's just... My mom and my grandmother that I've lived with my whole life. Uh, I come from many different parts of the DMV. I mean, I, I lived in Alexandria for a long time uh, where uh, T.C. Williams is. I don't know if you heard of it. Oh, yeah. From uh, Remember the Titans, right? Yes, sir. Ah. And so that's when my mom and my dad met. Then I had moved to Woodbridge. And that's when I really started playing uh, football. But um, in Alexandria, I wasn't an, an athlete whatsoever. I didn't like football at all i like basketball but i didn't play sports at all huh so when when did you start playing sports how did you get into it um i want to say my freshman year i played at west potomac uh which is in fairfax county but i just played you know just to play i didn't really football like going to college playing football wasn't my goal i was just playing on the team just for, you know, extracurricular activities. And then I had moved to Woodbridge where I went to this high school called Freedom where my mom's old high school teacher and my dad's old high school football coach, he was the head coach there. And so, you know, I walked in and he automatically uh, saw my face and he said I looked familiar. He couldn't pick up who I looked like. <laughs> And I told him who my dad was, and he was like, wow. And so, I mean, it was just, you know, one of those uh, small world sure. things. And um, my sophomore year is actually when I really started playing football. I really started loving the game, and that's when I started getting my offers. And, I mean, I haven't looked back since. Well, that, that's obviously pretty late. So was there, I mean, were you pressured to play before? Obviously, you've got size. So were people always saying, oh, you got to get out and play, you got to try this? Or was it just not on, on your radar at all? 
my mom, she wanted me to play some type of sport. She didn't care whether I played football, basketball, baseball. She just wanted me to play a sport. So I tried football in Little League, and then I think I quit the second day. Like, I didn't <laughs> like it whatsoever. How come? I, I Honestly, I'm trying to remember. I think I was a little skinnier then. I was a lot smaller. So I think I was playing wide receiver <laughs> or, or tight end or something like that. And I had got hit, and I did not like that feeling, so I left <laughs> the game. And so when I came back my freshman year of high school, I was like, ah, I give it another try. Mom wants me to play. so And I liked it whatsoever, but it wasn't like a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. So then when I got to, like I said, freedom, like he's been, he, like he's put a lot of uh, kids in the league I mean, and in college. I don't know if you know uh, Deshaun Hand. Yeah. He plays for the yeah, Detroit absolutely. Lions. Yeah, so he like mentored him, and I want to say Amal Brooks, and then my uh, brother, his name Gary Wortham uh, Jr. He played at uh, four different colleges. He went to Richmond, ECU, hmm. uh, Ventura, and so just having those guys mentor me and be around me, I think I just found a love for the game. And then you know, getting sacks and getting interceptions, and you know, you know that gets to you sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. crowds yelling. So I was like, wow, I like this. So <laughs> that's when it really came. And then I think I took my first visit to, um, where did we go? I want to say ODU. And then I think I just fell in love with college football. But then I really fell in love when I went to my first Alabama game and just seeing the atmosphere. And so then that's when the love of the game, because I found out, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do the rest of my life or as long as I can. Mm -hmm. You said you didn't like getting hit when you first played. Is that why you came back and decided to be a a D lineman? So you're the one doing the hitting instead of the other way around? See, that's what people ask me. and It's just (laughs) funny because that wasn't the plan. It just worked out like that because in high school I did. um, When I went to uh, Woodbridge to Freedom, I did play tight end and uh defensive end so like i don't know what happened my mom's still trying to figure it out (laughs) how i just hated football then but i love it now it's just um, a mystery it's a mystery it'll remain a mystery you'll update us when you find out the answer okay yes sir (laughs) now when you decided to go to florida what went into that because you mentioned going to alabama i know that deshaun was there and, and he was an influence on you you had Virginia schools interested. Why was Florida the the right place for you? Well, on the on the weekend I was uh come the weekend I came to Florida, I was supposed to originally go to Penn State, but I had been there already. So I decided to come here and I mean just with their whole academic process and you know how they really take care of uh student athletes and how they want for you to succeed like Forget the football part because football is not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. Just the way they set us up to be successful after college, after football, I really like. And then just, I mean, this is SEC football. It doesn't get any better than it. I I just fell in love with everything about Florida. I mean, the weather, first of all, because, you know, I'm in Virginia. So right now it's probably about 30, 40 degrees right now. Yeah. So I'm loving this weather. And then... (laughs) And then, like I said, I mean, it's SEC football. So as a D lineman, there's no better place to go than the SEC. Now, you came in as a freshman. You learned how to do things under Coach McElwain and under that staff. 
Then you have a whole new staff that comes in as you go into your sophomore year. What have been the biggest challenges in that process for you? Finding out what these coaches want from me. Like, what do they want me to do? And just figuring out, you know, you know, once a new coaching staff comes in, you know, the player's not going to really buy in at first. So it, it took a minute for us to buy in, but then once we bought into the program, I mean, you see what happened. Mm-hmm. With Coach Grantham's defense, there's such a focus on pressure and obviously on blitzing. How has that changed your role as a, an interior lineman and your responsibilities? How have those changed? How's it? Last year, I want to say we did a lot of hold up as a as a D line to Gavin reading and Coach Grantham defense allows us to you know hit our gaps. And, and get to the quarterback and get to the ball, not just sitting there and reading and posting. And so with his defense, it, it allows D-linemen and interior linemen to make plays. Since you've been at Florida, which upperclassmen do you feel like have been your biggest mentors and why? Who have you learned the most from? I'd have to say CC, just because, I mean, it's CC. I mean, he grinds. <laughs> I mean, he knows how to play the game. He's been here. So it's not like he's going to tell me anything wrong. And then he's just the way he works and the way he strains. And then the other one would have to be Siante, my tight end. Hmm. I mean, just the way he plays, his aggression. And, I mean, he's, he's a leader of this team. He doesn't allow nobody to be down. So he just he wants everybody to work. That's all he asks from everybody on his team is everybody to work. And you also mentioned earlier, you talked about some of your mentors from back home, and I, I know that Deshaun Hand is, is still a really important influence on you. Can you just talk about the way that relationship has really flourished and, and what he's done to continue to help you? I want to say a couple months ago, we were talking, and, you know, he was getting ready for the draft. And, I mean, he was telling me, you know, this is my year. I need Deshaun. He was like, you, you got everything that I taught you, you know, I taught you everything you can know. He was like, now you just got to work. And then, you know, just seeing from where he's came from, I mean, I'm pretty sure he was a third-round pick, and now he's rated one of the top defensive rookie linemen in the league right now. And that's one thing he's always had with me being around him was just his work ethic. On the field, in the gym, day and night. I mean, I remember in high school, we'd be at my high school uh, weight room working out at, like, one in the morning just because mm. we were bored. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the desire to play SEC football and, and what that meant to you. Do you remember, was there a moment where you where you all of a sudden realized, oh, wow, I'm, I'm playing in the SEC now? I would I would think it would be at some point last year you're on the field, something happens, and you just have that light bulb go on. Was, was there a moment like that for you? Yeah, it was the uh, Michigan game. We played in that big Cowboy Stadium. Because <laughs> um, when I walked on that field and saw that big uh, Jumbotron, I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is the big leads right here. And so, I mean, that's that's when it clicked for me. I mean, we were practicing and everything, you know, scrimmaging in the swamp, you know, how big the swamp is. Mm-hmm. But when I got in that Cowboy Stadium, I was just like, wow. So it happened pretty early for you. That's good. Game one. You, you figured out pretty quickly what it was all about. Yes, sir. <laughs> couple final things for you. What would you say are some of the most important lessons that you learned your freshman year that changed the way you've approached your sophomore season? You got to take coaching and you got to be able to sit there and study your opponents. 
I mean, you know, most guys, you know, they don't watch film. Some, you know, just play. But being able to study your opponent and to study the team you're about to face enables you to play faster. I mean, that's one thing I really learned this year from last year. Because last year, I don't think I watched film as much as I do now. Like, I watch film almost every day. Hmm. Right after homework, if I'm not doing homework or I'm not getting treatment, I'm watching film. And then another thing is just taking care of your body. I mean, when I came in in January, I think I was about 348. I was like 348, 349. And now I'm about 309. (laughs) So just being able to take care of your body, put the right things in your body. And that's really thanks to our uh, nutrition staff. I want to say those are three things I've learned so far. What is it when you're watching film? I think a lot of people would say, oh, it's, you know, defensive lineman, you know, there's not that much to it. You're just trying to get at the quarterback, et cetera. What are you looking for when you're watching all this film? I'm looking for stances. I'm looking for, do they look at the person that they're going to block? Are their heels heavy? Are they pointed out? I look at how their hands are placed, how when the ball snaps, how do they place their hands? Do they have low hands? Do they got high hands? Hmm. Are they aggressive? Do they quick set? Does the running back give away which side he's going? And then, you know, like on screens or draws, a quarterback sometimes, I want to say um, Mississippi State's quarterback, like when he when it's about to be a draw, he turns to the side real quick, and then he just steps. Like paying attention to detail like that, helps you to play faster. Hmm. That's very interesting. I wouldn't think there's that many things that go into it, but I guess at every position, there's a lot of things you can take from film. Oh, yeah. There's a lot you can take from film that people never pick up on. Uh, I'm curious. You've said you're watching lots of film. You're doing homework. You're practicing. There's a lot that goes on there. When you do have some time outside of football, are there any things that you enjoy doing? I like playing my Xbox. <laughs> playing what, uh, what game? I like playing Fortnite. Okay. And you and, you and everybody like, else, right? <laughs> yep. Like playing Fortnite and then, you know, the new Call of Duty just came out. So I like Call of Duty and, of course, Madden. And then uh, I want to say the one activity I do like, I like to go to Top Golf. I like to golf. I like <laughs> I just like that whole area, that whole vibe. And they got good food. So, Are you actually good at golf or are you just a Top Golf guy? Those are two very different things I've learned. You know what? You're absolutely correct. I'm going to say I am just a top golf guy. <laughs> Are you the guy that's like rolling it off the top and it's just bouncing into a target and you're getting more points than the guy that hits a drive right at 200 yards straight? Is that you? Oh, no. No, no. I'm trying to hit it now. Okay. But if I don't hit it, oh, well. <laughs> All right. Final thing for you. Uh, I know you're very early in the week trying to get ready for Missouri as we're talking right now, but I'm curious, what are some of the things overall you've noticed that they do well and, and what do you do to prepare for that? Uh, I noticed that they run the counter well, and the way you prepare for stuff like that, and you know, I mean, Drew Lock, he predicted to go a first first round quarterback. Mm-hmm. So being able to apply pressure to him is going to be the key. Not letting him be able to sit there and do what he wants to do. So, but I think just the thing that we got to do is just get off the ball, get off the ball, and push back. Well, Kyrie, we certainly wish you a lot of luck doing that. You've been a, uh, a lot of fun to talk to, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. 
While homecoming festivities carry on all weekend, the main event featuring Florida and Missouri kicks off at 4 o'clock on Saturday on the SEC Network and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Let the Gator growl.